dors encore, réveille-toi. N'écoute pas Babylone, il t'est fourni des armes pour tuer ton peuple. N'écoute pas Afrique. Afrique Ananga Oyamba, toi cheveux crepus. Batwa Mayele Bo Simba Niba Bigi. Oya Bilanga Bo Simba Niba Congo. Simba Niba Boko Mamuna Lekate. Oh Afrika, Malobate, Monsalande. Mwindo Yangolo, Afrika. Mobali Yamingao, Afrika. Hatona Mosolo, Afrika. Tu gâtes ton nom par-ci par-là Quand c'était les blancs Négro a souffert Mais c'était mal de connaître Négro a combattu Pour arriver en black en black Devenu le stade de la guerre Le pouvoir est ta raison La tricherie ta seule arme Tu cries la démocratie Welcome to Congo Live, the authentic voice of the Congolese people in America. I'm your host, Patricia Lokwa, joining you as usual with my co-host, Kambali Musavuli. Kambali, how are you today? I am great. I'm great. I'm over here in uh, Chicago right now, um, enjoying the beautiful weather in Chicago and connecting with uh, colleagues and friends. How are you? I'm good. The weather is looking like it's going to be pretty warm this uh, week. So I encourage everybody to get out there and uh, just enjoy the weather because it's been pretty cold and everybody's been cooped up inside. So I hope that you'll be also be doing the same. And I hope also that our listeners in New York will be feeling the burn. I'm not paid by Bernie, but I want to make sure that since the primary is coming up April uh, next week on Tuesday, um, that people will actually go out and vote during the primary elections in New York City. Well, I'll make sure that uh, I also vote when it's uh, our time. Uh, to get back a little bit into the show, last week our Ghanaian guest, Ni Akwete, shared his story on how he keeps Congo alive in his work and the importance of African unity within Africa and abroad. This month, we want to remind our listeners, is Genocide Commemoration Month, and our focus is bringing the story of the Rwandan genocide and how it has affected the Congo. Our guest today is a genocide Rwandan survivor, Claude Gatebuke, who will be joining us a little bit later during the show. We encourage our listeners to join this conversation by calling 410-481-1010 later on on the show and have an opportunity to talk to Claude Gatebuke as he shares his story on a purpose-driven life in the face of adversity. But first, let's hear from Kambali the current situation and affairs in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, the African Union representative, uh, Idem Kojo, was back in the Congo this week uh, to advance a discussion around uh, the so-called national dialogue taking place in Kinshasa right now. Although uh, many opposition forces refused to participate, especially uh, the G7 and the dynamic of the opposition, uh, Idem Kojo uh, has said that the dialogue must move forward and it will remain open to anyone who would like to participate in it. And even those who are refusing to participate in it. Uh, notably, the major opposition party, UDPS, 
will participate in this uh, dialogue. A preparatory committee is being established within days in order to determine the participants in the dialogue, mainly the presidential majority, the opposition, and civil society leaders. Uh, meanwhile, a coalition of 33 civil society organizations have issued a letter to Idem Kojo um, questioning the veracity of the dialogue. They have called on the African Union and the Congolese government to simply respect Resolution 2277, which was issued not uh, long ago by the UN Security Co uh, Council, actually this month. Um, a point of note in the UN resolution, it does say that it supports the national dialogue, but it calls on the DRC government to hold elections per the country's constitution. After a press conference held by the U4NU Society and the fourth voice, Katiem uh, Voix, two organizations in Kinshasa of youth leaders, um, they held a press conference on uh, calling on the release of the young Congolese activist Jean-Marie Kalonji, who has been detained by the security agency in Congo since December, 2015, uh, December 15, 2015. Uh, during that press conference, they released a petition signed by over 112 uh, human rights organizations demanding that the president of the Congo release Jean-Marie or bring him to trial. Um, the situation with Jean-Marie is still dire, and we hope that the youth leaders on the ground will continue to press on and mobilize support for the release of this young man. Uh, the members of the presidential majority in the parliament plan to call on the Supreme Court to issue its opinion on Article 70 of the DRC Constitution. For our listeners who may not know what Article 70 of the DRC Constitution says, it, is, it says actually that the President of the Republic is elected by direct universal suffrage for a term of five years, which is renewable only once. At the end of his term, the president stays in office until the president-elect effectively assumes his function. It is the second part of the article that Kabila supporters are seeking to make their argument for him to remain in power. That means that if the election does not take place this year, um, even though his mandate is over in December, uh, they are saying that he will be staying in power until the next election. So that's what we, we hope that this will not happen, as uh, many people have called this as a form of glissement, of sliding, so that the president of the Congo stays in power for longer. Uh, lastly, uh, unfortunately, a bomb was set off in a car in the city of Bukavu, uh, the capital city of uh, South Kivu province, yesterday. Uh, three people who were in the car died. It is not clear whether the bomb was set in the car or whether the people in the car were carrying a bomb while it detonated. Investigations are to follow. Chaque visage que l'on touche, chaque étranger sur la route, tous ces espoirs émitant le doute, c'est un peu de tout ça qui écrit l'histoire. C'est un peu de tout ça, et on est fait un peu de tout ça, tu sais, toute vérité a 
Je raconte les épreuves accomplies, les rêveurs incompris, les misères, les hivers, les petits frères en sont pris, les décès, les écoles, les excès, les alcools, les machines, les racines de Martin et Malcolm, les bunkers, les palaces, les coups de cœur, les palabres, les ruelles les plus belles, les lumières de Paname, les One Love Redeem, les Bad Boy Didi, les boucards, les coupables, les Tupac, les Biggie, les absents, les soupirs, les accents, les sourires, les barbares, les bazars, les bagarres, les fous rires, les délits de sale gueule. Les délires, les battles, les rançons, les tensions, les chansons de Michael Que des histoires Chaque vraies. visage que l'on touche Chaque étranger sur la route Tous ces espoirs émis dans le doute C'est un peu de tout ça qui écrit l'histoire La luxure, les cœurs bras, les teigneux, les haineux, les émeutes du 9-3 Les bourgeois, les repos, les coups bas, les repos Les poupées, les loupées, les couplets de Renault La flicaille, les problèmes, les freestyles, les poèmes Les sévices, les grévistes, les vraies vies de poèmes Les clichés, le big love, les fichés, les big boss Les amours, le glamour, le rap lourd, son beatbox Les honneurs, les malaises, les bonheurs, le mal-être Les rancœurs, les grands cœurs, les grandeurs du Maghreb Les confrères, les poteaux, les concerts, les pogos les douceurs, les douleurs, les, les couleurs, couleurs du Congo Que des histoires chaque vraies Chaque visage que l'on touche Chaque étranger sur la route Tous ces espoirs émis dans le doute C'est un peu de tout ça qui écrit l'histoire C'est un peu de tout ça Congo Live, you were just listening to Histoire Vraie by Congolese rapper Yusufa Mabiki and Rwandan singer Corneille. In this song, they share the story of how actions we take make the story of our lives real. 22 years ago, the action taken by Madmen created a new story for the Central African region. On April 6, 1994, the airplane carrying Rwandan president, Juvenal Abiyarimana, and Cyprien Tariamira, the president of Burundi, was shot down as it prepared to land in Kigali, Rwanda, killing everyone on board. The two presidents were returning from a meeting of the East and Central African leaders in Tanzania in which they discussed ways to end the ethnic violence in Burundi and Rwanda. 
The assassination of these two presidents set in motion some of the bloodiest events of the late 20th century and the Rwandan genocide and the Congo Wars. From April to July 1994, 800,000 Rwandans were killed by extremists while the world watched in silence. Our story today with our guest Claude Gatebuki, who lived the civil war of Rwanda in 1990 to 1994. He was also survived with Rwandan genocide and joining us today shares his story of how he and his family, through the kindness of people, were saved and lived to tell their story. I'm always humbled uh, to really hear Claude's story. I mean, he has an amazing uh, story of resilience and survival, uh, which always inspired me. Uh, I always ask myself if I went through uh, what he went through, uh, will I have the same courage as he did? But our listeners do not know um, this cour- courageous activist you know, who won't stop breaking the silence for the voiceless around the world. Uh, but who is he, actually? Uh, Claude Gatebouke is a Rwandan genocide survivor, a civil war survivor, as you mentioned, and a human rights advocate. He is currently the executive director and co-founder of the African Great Lakes Action Network, an organization focused on justice, peace, and prosperi- uh, prosperity in the Great Lakes region of Africa. He is currently based in Asheville, Tennessee. He is also a member of the African Great Lakes Advocacy Coalition, Uh, The coalition unites over a dozen advocacy organizations with a common vision for a peaceful Great Lakes region of Africa. Um, What our our listeners may not know, the the Great Lakes encompasses Rwanda, Uganda, Burundi, and the Congo. Close advocacy work focuses on genocide and mass atrocities prevention, and it includes lobbying on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and across the United States. Uh, Mr. Gatebuke is a regular presenter at colleges, universities, churches, community organizations, and conferences nationwide and globally. Uh, Many have probably caught him on national TV uh, from NPR, Al Jazeera, Straight Talk Africa, and many different uh, news networks have reported on his tremendous work of uh, advocacy that he's doing across the United States. Mr. Gatabuke, welcome to the show. Well, before we put Mr. Gatabuke on the phone, at first I want to play this song by Jupiter Aquis International because I feel that this song is appropriate prior to having our guest who's on the show. And I want uh, our listeners to listen to this if you understand Lingala and if you understand English to take into context what the song is saying prior to getting our guest who's on the show. Le 30 juin 1960, palais de la nation, Léopoldville, Kinshasa aujourd'hui. Écoutez-moi ça. Nous avons connu les ironies, les insultes, les coups que nous devions subir au matin, midi et soir.
Kiso Tote kama kiloko la mungwa Natango ya bakoko na biso Tote kama kiloko la basenzi Dipandango to zwa kinde ya pasi Dipandango to zwa kinde ya kolelelela So I wanted to play a short clip it of uh, the song called Congo by Jupiter Bakonji and his band Oquis International. Jupiter Sounds is really unique in a combination of Afropop, traditional and Congolese rhythms, funk and rock music. He calls on this distinct sound, Bufinia Rock, that's what he calls it, and his lyrics often carry political and social messages, including criticism of the DRC government, as well as positive encouragement for Africans to better realize their individual talent and potential. In this song, Jupiter sings about responsibility of the Congolese people on the current situation in the Congo, giving a historical comparison from the time of colonialism to the present-day Congo. Welcome to the show, Claude. How are you doing today? I am doing pretty good. How about you? We're happy to have you on Congo Live. Uh, just listening to the song and talking about the responsibility of Congolese and just in general Africans, you being a Rwandan. Um, can you please share with us a little bit of your story of how did you come about, before even getting into how you started working, uh, advocating for Rwanda and Congo, can you share a little bit of a history of how did the process happen for you during the genocide? Uh, it actually started before the genocide, and mm-hmm. I just want to thank you for having me first. No, no. Um, uh, you know, I grew up in a country that was peaceful and there was nothing happening. I had never even seen a soldier. Uh, dress for combat. They look like Boy Scouts, the soldiers in Rwanda. And then one day I saw all this military equipment and, you know, all this uh, military movement. And uh, it was in 1990. And that turned into a bloody war where um, members of the Uganda military um, who formed the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the party that's in power today in Rwanda, um, were members of the Uganda military invaded Rwanda, and they came down and committed major atrocities. So my first introduction to the war was uh, sometime in 1991 and 92 when refugees from the northern part of the country were moving into the city of Kigali where I lived. And, mm-hmm. you know, people were missing limbs, and, you know, they had all these horror stories to tell. Um, some had, you know, climbed out of um, graves, mass graves, and others had, um, you know, lost their whole families and, you know, people had been called into meetings and, you know, uh, had to death with hand weapons and, Mm. or sometimes, you know, meetings where they had um, hundreds of people and threw grenades into the crowds. So that was my first introduction to the war and that went on for almost four years. And um, I remember in late 1993, um, Rwanda was a totally different 
from the country that I knew when I was a kid. Absolutely, because um, I, I want to find out a little bit more of your life before the war. You know, a lot of times we hear about Africa. It's continuously war. Um, you know, a lot of people don't really get the image of what Africa is like. And in specific, I've never been to Rwanda. Can you share with us how Rwanda was prior to the war around April 6, 1994, around that period? Rwanda is a beautiful country. And so... But it had, as of April 6, 1994, Rwanda was a very transformed country by the four-year war. So it was no longer the same uh, beautiful Rwanda where, you know, um, I remember before this war, um, not everybody had electricity, but those who had electricity, you know, they actually, the electricity was on every day. And when the war started, um, you know, uh, there was rationing of electricity because, the power plants had been bombed. Um, you know, that's one of the things. We had a lot of uh, terrorist attacks, if you will, where uh, markets, bus stations, and places with thousands and thousands of people were being, um, you know, people would come in there and set off bombs in the markets. There were all kinds of weapons um, in Rwanda to the point where it was easier for me to buy. It was cheaper for me to buy a grenade than it was for me to buy a loaf of bread. Mm. It was cheaper for me to buy a grenade than it was for me to buy a bottle of soda. Um, and people who normally would just commit a regular crime in, like they do in any other society, they started committing armed robberies and things like that. Um, there were riots between political parties, um, you know, some that supported the government and others that supported the rebels. And um, there were also massacres, especially in places where the rebels were occupying. Um, and uh, there were also um, assassinations of politicians. You know, so Rwanda was on a bubble. It was like a, a, an extending balloon that just kept getting pumped with air. And it was on the verge of an explosion. And when the president was shot, I mean, it was almost total insecurity in Rwanda. However, um, as a kid, before and even during the war, I really loved playing soccer. And um, I remember that week was uh, during um, Easter break, and we were in a tournament, in a city tournament, where we had qualified for the semifinal. And then when I heard that the president had been shot, um, my first thought was, oh, I hope he didn't die because we need to finish this soccer tournament. Wow. Um, it was a totally different reality for uh, my mom and my sisters, especially. They, they were really scared because we had seen what happened whenever anybody was assassinated. So um, just to show you how, you know, the mixture of how war changed, you know, my childhood and other, you know, other people's childhoods. Um, also, uh, another thing that I would like to add is that there were a lot of um, young Tutsi kids that left Rwanda to go and join the RPF, the rebels, to become child soldiers. Some of them were my classmates, you know, others were uh, my neighbors, you know, my soccer teammates. Um, mm. You know, I remember at least six kids, you know, between the age of, you know, 12 and 15 that went to join the RPF uh, during their war against the Rwandan government. So there was all of that happening prior to the genocide. Quick question for you. Uh, you gave this narrative, uh, Cloud. Thank you again. Very uh, humble to have you on. Very happy you came on to share your story. But how old were you um, in 1994? 14. 
So 14 years old, so a young 14-year-old who loves soccer is caught up in seeing his friends. Uh, some of them are joining militia group, uh, others being uh, either pulled into the war or being killed uh, during the Civil War. What was going through your mind living during that time as a 14-year-old Rwandan? The, the, my thoughts changed really quickly um, on the night of um, April 6, uh, 1994. Even though I had been exposed to the effects of war and had seen my friends go and join the rebels and had seen all the insecurity growing, you know, I was still preoccupied with everyday life. Mm. You know, I remember just walking past riots to go play soccer with my friends. Um, but then on April 6, that same night, we started hearing bombings and shellings. Um, and we started hearing things crumbling around, you know, like buildings coming down, people screaming and crying, dogs barking, all kinds of noise. And uh, I thought that the whole city had been destroyed. And this went on and on and on until the day that we left Rwanda, uh, but it was especially heavy in Kigali. And, you know, neighbors started butchering neighbors, the extremists. Hutu neighbors were going after Tutsis and um, killing them with hand weapons, machetes and clubs and, you know, all kinds of, um, you know, uh, horrible atrocities that um, we, you know, I, I witnessed and saw and, and survived. And at one point, um, there were, so at multiple occasions, we actually escaped um, or were usually because somebody came and intervened and, you know, advocated and asked for us to be freed when the militias were getting ready to kill us. Um, but there was a point where they actually took us as far as digging our own graves, me and my mother. Uh, they ordered us to dig our own graves uh, before they killed us so they can bury us. Um, so, so this is right after uh, April 6, 1994, right? Now this period is not during the genocide. It was not... It, it was during uh, the weeks following the um, the nineteen the the April six ninety four shooting of uh -huh. the plane. So you know the killing attempts happen on multiple occasions after that day, and um, you know the ones that were really personal and right close to me uh, also were the um, rebels were shelling the city a number of times. The shells hit either the neighbors or the houses that we were in, but um, fortunately, uh, we would make it um, even though we kept losing people. Um, so that's, that's how it all developed. And, and we ended up escaping the city of Kigali and went to uh, near the border of the Congo. And it wasn't until July 94 that we crossed into the Congo. How many people were around you when uh, you were in this... Uh exodus um, as the city is being bombed by rebels, the government also fighting. How many, give us a sense of a picture, a mental picture of how many people were at the border of Congo and Rwanda at the time. In, in Kigali, the city already had almost a million residents. And uh, by the end of 1993, because of the atrocities that were being committed by the RPF, another million people had fled into the city. So that is almost two million people were living in Kigali prior to April 1994. And 
a million of them were destitute. They were living in tent cities. Uh, these are the people that I'm talking about that had lost their whole families and, you know, were escaping this war. Uh, and to put it in perspective in American terms, you know, the U.S. has 330 million people. That's like taking over, over 33 million people and moving them to one city within the space of a year. Wow. So, you know, that is a major resource constraint to anybody and everybody in any city in the U.S. There's no city that's even close to that many people. And so if you can imagine it in today's terms in the U.S., you know, your cell phone signal, your, you know, the traffic, the lines at the grocery store, um, you know, all kinds of things that, you know, would, would that, that would be changed as a result of having a mass exodus of people. So now when we cross the border into the Congo, there was more than 2 million people that crossed in the space of three days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember where we stayed, the house that we were sheltering in, and this family actually took us in. We were the first family that they took in, and they kept taking more and more people in that were fleeing the genocide and the war. Um, it was probably like 30 people in this four, um, this three-bedroom house with four family members, a mother, a father, and two kids that had taken all of us in. Um, and the distance from that house to Congo was just crossing a street. And here in the U.S., when you get to a, a, a crossing point at the traffic light, you get 20 seconds and you're gone. You know, usually you make it across the street before the 20 seconds expire. It took from the middle of the night. It was probably like 2 or 3 a.m. when we realized we needed to get out and get and get going to cross that street and get into the Congo, we didn't make it, you know, from two or 3 a.m. It, was, it wasn't until midday the next day that we made it across the border. That's how many people were crossing. People were, tra- you know, trampled on. If you lost the hand of the person that you were with, you lost them, and we did lose some um, relatives as yeah. we crossed. And, um, you know, there were animals and cars and, you know, bikes and, I mean, everything. Um, well, you know, everybody and everything and whatever they could take, they were crossing into the Congo and we went to Goma. And, um, you know, with Goma being a city of already a million people and it was also resource constrained, you know. Why did you leave when you were in Goma? Um, we've, now we have a million people crossing the border in a city with a million people. Where, where did they place the refugee, and how was that? There was no placing the refugees. When we crossed, people started squatting in different places. Uh, if, you had, if, if a person was building a house and it was incomplete, the house was taken over. People's yards were taken over. Storefronts were taken over. The size of the streets, the sidewalks and everything. I mean, the place was full of people everywhere and there was no structure, nothing, um, until they started setting up the refugee camps, which were, re- uh, were a little bit further from um, Goma. But there were people everywhere. In every corner of Goma that you can think of, every sidewalk, every storefront, and as I said, uh, people's yards. There was a person that actually took us in and um we and many other families were staying on his on his yard 
on this family's yard. Claude, I have a question for you, and I'm really humbled to hear your story because it just reminds me how blessed we are here um, in the USA uh, and other parts of the world. Um, as I was listening to you talk about how you are standing there digging your own grave um, with your family members and you don't know where your life may be going, and that might be the last time you see your family members and crossing into the Congo and seeing people getting trampled on. How was the environment between you and your family members, and what was the conversation like in order for you guys to keep hope alive in every obstacle that you guys overcame? The, it, it, was, it, it, was, uh, it was difficult, and it's actually hard to... Um, recall you know the whole environment i do remember that for me personally i would pace back and forth mm -hmm. um my stomach would bubble and i would shake for periods of time and then after some time i would go numb to whatever the situation was so um i remember having a conversation with my mom when they were ordering us to dig our grave and um i um she asked me if i was scared and i said i wasn't because I had already passed the um, stage of being scared, the shaking, the stomach bubbling and all of that, and I was already numb and resigned. There was actually no hope. I, I you know, my biggest worry was uh, my father was not in Rwanda when the shooting of the plane happened. Mm -hmm. And so he was stuck outside of the country, could not come into the country. The borders were sealed and everything. And um, I kept thinking, will he ever know that me and my mother were killed. Will my sisters ever make it, you know, to him or to, you know, be able to at least to let him know that they're still alive? Um, you know, will my sisters make it, you know, alive? Um, you know, those were my thoughts. Um, and um, the other thing is I felt really lonely, even though I was standing there with my mother and there were a lot of um, neighbors that came and started yelling and, um, you know, pleading mm -hmm. for us um, to to be left alone. And then um, uh, two other guys from the area were actually, they came close uh, with uh, the driver who was driving us away from Kigali, mm -hmm. and they started pleading with the militias. Um, but even with all of those people around, knowing that I was about to be killed, I felt really alone. And... Um, you know, I had gone through a million emotions from seeing, you know, some of the people that I grew up with, you know, get killed with machetes and from seeing, you know, kids blown up with bombs and, you know, people you're standing with get hit with bullets and things like that. Um, but, you know, those moments were always, you know, take care of your own life. Um, and then there was times when it was like, okay, it's over. You know, now now what? You know, what's yeah. next? It's very interesting um, as I'm listening to you. Um, he, you know, the question was regarding hope. And at that moment, you say that, you know, you, you be feeling lonely and there's there's no even sense of hope because you're basically accepting destiny. But in it, what I found interesting in connection to what you do today is you are still advocating for what will our story be remembered like? What would my father remember us like? Are they going to know this story? And to know that despite everything that was going on around you, you were thinking about somebody else really says a lot about who you are today as a 
somebody who's fighting for Rwanda because you've kept this story and you've told this story. And sometimes we don't see our purpose when um, something is happening, but I commend you for even sharing this story. And as you're talking about transitioning into, um, you know, being in the Congo and settling in, what happens during that period to the point where you end up here in the USA? So um, when I, I mentioned that my father was outside of the country when um, the genocide started, mm-hmm. he was in the U.S. Um, he had uh, come. He was actually coming back in two months. So in June of '94 is when he was supposed to be coming back. Um, he was finishing up his masters. And um, when we got to the Congo and were in those, um, you know, they were setting up refugee camps and people were dying of cholera on the side of the streets and there was a shortage of water and my sister and I got sick and all that. One day, um, we were staying in this, as I said, in this compound, you know, this place, this fenced area with, you know, hundreds of other people on the yard. Uh, where, you know, it rained on us when it rained and, this, you know, the sun beat down on us when, you know, um, it was daytime. And uh, a, an American aid worker showed up. And this is someone that my father had talked to and asked him to look for us. And uh, we were rescued by this um, aid worker. And uh, he took us to Uganda. And the plan was that when we get there, we'll apply for a visa in the U.S. Embassy and, you know, we'll be in the U.S. within two weeks or so, you know, with our father. We got there, the visa application was rejected, and in fact, they put a stamp in my mom's passport that was a refusal. And basically, once you got that stamp, you could not get a visa from any other U.S. Embassy. And it wasn't until my father got his asylum that... um, we were able to join him in the U.S. So that's how we ended up in the U.S. And mm-hmm. we had to leave Uganda and, and ended up in Kenya. And, um, you know, from Kenya is where we came to the U.S. Um, my my uh, brother, Claude, I'm looking so forward uh, to your book because uh, your story is unbelievable. It's inspirational. Inspirational, yes. I was just going to I really hope that you no know, 2016 is when we are going to read your book. Um, but I wanted to segue into that experience in Congo. Uh, it was a year when you crossed and you were in a refugee camp. What was your impression of the Congolese people or the Zarian people at the time? Now, how were they? How was your experience being in Goma uh, during the time when you were a refugee right after the Rwanda genocide? So first, yes, the book will be coming. I don't know if it's going to be in 2016, but it's very close. Um, <laughs> we'll definitely have to have you back on, talk about the book, but go ahead. Um, but when we got to Goma, and I, I still, you know, think of it today, the Congolese people were extremely nice, the regular people. We had some issues with the security forces, you know, the police and the, the God civil. That, that was, that's what they were called at the time. Um, and they were taking, you know, people's property and things like that. But the Congolese people themselves, um, they would offer you what they had, you know, many, many times, even when the water was just dripping out of, you know, the faucet, 
they would let you have the water, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they didn't bother anybody, you know, the people of Congo. Uh, and um, they were, um, from my experience, uh, very hospitable, considering that there were so many of us that were coming and accommodating. I mean, imagine in America, anywhere, somebody showing up and setting up and laying in front of somebody's store. You know, I mean, you see homeless people get arrested all the time, you know. And so now you have a million homeless people in the same city. And the people, the Congolese people didn't really, you know, cause any problems to the people that were squatting on their properties. Um, And so to me, that's, you know, the perspective I always keep of, you know, the hospitality and and the niceness of the people of the Congo, and uh, especially in Goma. And then, um, you know, when I think about how they ended up suffering the consequences of their hospitality, um, it's, um, it's both heartbreaking, but it also is a driver to why, you know, uh, people, you know, Rwandans should and must, you know, advocate for peace in the Congo and do everything possible and necessary to get, you know, to help Congo become peaceful again. Can you share a little bit more? What do you mean by um, the consequences for what they did? What is some of the things for some of our listeners who may not know that may have happened to those that may have uh, helped? Well, after we crossed the border into the Congo in 94, so I, I, I left within you know, the first couple of months of getting there. Mm-hmm. I didn't stay there that long. Um, but the UN set up these refugee camps with millions of people in tent cities. And uh, for those in the U.S., uh, reference would, basic, would be like what was, you know, the, the tent cities that were set up in Haiti after the earthquake would probably be the, the easiest and quickest example um, to give you a picture. So now you have all of these people packed in near Goma and near the border of Rwanda. And in 19, October 1996, the Rwandan military and the Ugandan military, and this time the Rwandan military is the RPF, the same group that invaded Rwanda in 1990 from Uganda. Now they won in July of 94, took over the country, now they, you know, turn their attention and they invade the Congo. Um, they went into those refugee camps and massacred thousands and thousands. Um, the estimates are 200,000 people. What would be refugees. the reason for that? Because, um, well, the stated reason by mm-hmm. the RPF or the Rwandan Patriotic Front was that they were pursuing those who committed genocide in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. However... When they went into the Congo, they killed babies, they killed women, they killed old people. Sometimes, if you read the UN mapping report that came out in uh, 2010, they even selected blind people and handicapped people and killed them. So this Mm -hmm. wasn't going after the killers or those who committed genocide. They were just looking to massacre as many people as possible. Um, On top of that, they killed a lot of Congolese people. Um, And... The largest suffering actually was on the Congolese people where since that invasion, more than 6 million people have died. The majority of those being children under the age of five. Now, um, 
the other thing that happened when Rwanda and Uganda invaded the Congo was plundering of Congolese resources. And I think they, this was the biggest driver uh, because when you look at how the attacks happened, they would go into the Congo mm-hmm. and go right to the banks and to the stocks of minerals and other goods mm-hmm. uh, that could be exported. And in that period, 1997, 98, you know, up to about 2009-10, um, the export of minerals in both Rwanda and Uganda, especially in Rwanda, were a whole lot higher than um, anything that was historically exported out of those countries. And there was no new discoveries. My question is, like, you would never see something like this happening in the USA and the government not getting involved. Where is Rwanda government? Where is the Congolese government? Where is the Uganda government? Like, why are the people not being protected? You've mentioned large numbers. Where is the government when it comes to protecting the people? Well, good question. Um, You look at today's leadership in the region, Mm -hmm. in Uganda, Rwanda, and Congo. Uh, uh, they're known as the KKK, Kabila, Kaguta, which is Kaguta, Museveni, and Kagame. Mm-hmm. Um, those three guys uh, are tied together on, in how they came to power. Museveni came to power 30 years ago in Uganda through a six-year rebellion. He fought his way to power uh, after losing an election. And during his war, Kagame, Paul Kagame of Rwanda, joined him in that rebellion, and they fought it together. They won in Uganda, and then he turned around and helped them to invade Rwanda in 1990. And they went in and committed all these massacres, and you know, um, they shut down the plane, at least from everything that we can tell. And according to the recent BBC documentary, Rwanda's Untold uh, Stories, um, it, 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 you know, members of the RPF are affirming that the RPF itself shot the president of Rwanda, set up the genocide, mm-hmm. then they won the war, and then two years later, so Museveni took six years to win. Four years later, he uh, helps Kagame invade Rwanda. Four years later, Kagame takes over Rwanda. Two years later, Kagame turns around and helps Kabila and uh, Lauren, Lauren Kabila, the father, of the current Desiree uh, Kabila in power, Joseph Kabila in power in uh, Congo. And they're all tied by the mass atrocities they committed. These atrocities that we're talking about, the I'm, millions of people that have been killed. I'm a little all bit. Three presidents. I'm a little bit confused because you're saying Kagame, you're talking about the president of uh, Rwanda right now, correct? Yes. And isn't this the same person that we see coming into the USA? He speaks at different universities. Does. How is the USA not be aware of this and have somebody such as Kagame come into the USA for a democracy state? Are they not paying attention to what's going on? This, you know, saying that they didn't, they don't know, Mm -hmm. or they didn't know, maybe 10 years they could have committed, they could have claimed that Mm -hmm. they didn't know what he was doing. But with the kind of work that um, Friends of the Congo and Africa Faith and Justice Network and, you know, our organization, African Great Lakes Action Network and other organizations have done to raise awareness of these atrocities. Mm-hmm. No one today can claim that the, um, they don't know. And I'll, 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 
there are some people in the government in the U.S. that have expressed strong views against Kagame. The chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in Congress, uh, uh, Representative Ed Royce, has written multiple times about Kagame and also about Kagame's strong supporters. The reason why Kagame is able to still come to the U.S. Mm-hmm. today, um, other than the fact that um, a lot of American people, the you know uh, general population is not aware of his atrocities, mm-hmm. is because he has a strong lobby. He has a very strong uh, public relations um, team that he pays a lot of money, and he has some very strong supporters around the world. Um, Tony Blair is uh, the former uh, prime minister of uh, Britain, is a good uh, good friend and a big supporter, a staunch supporter of Paul Kagame. Bill Clinton and the Clinton Global Initiative, um, those mm. are his strong supporters. He's at the Clinton Global Initiative uh, annual meeting every year. And um, uh, Bill Clinton is one of his strongest supporters. And um, a lot of work has been done to let not only the institutions, the universities, and the various um, leaders in government know the atrocities that um, Paul Kagame of Rwanda has committed. And in spite of that, mm-hmm. uh, he still gets invitations now, mostly from uh, private institutions or educational institutions. And we've actually um, had one-on-one meetings with some of those um, organizations, uh, one of them being Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, where they did not seem, um, they always want to connect economic development to Kagame's record mm-hmm. and ignore the human rights um, and the atrocities that he's committed. And to me, it's because the people who are being killed are Africans. You would never hear, I mean, if anybody thinks this, they would not say it openly that, you know, um, Hitler built a lot of, you know, nice roads in Germany or that, you know, he helped Germany economically. No matter what he did, that is seemingly positive. Um, with the amount of people that he killed, you would never hear anyone come out and praise him or support him. If he was alive today, he would not be invited to all these various institutions in the U.S. or around the world. So I think part of the reason why he's still... Um, being invited mm-hmm. and touring mm-hmm. the country is because he has those strong supporters. Um, you know, he's uh, powerful friends. He has a strong lobby and the people that he has killed are Africans. You know, these are not lives that are valued to the, for example, you know, if this was to happen in Europe, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it would be a total, you know, it would, the, the whole world, We'll get up in arms Absolutely. and do something. So, uh, so we have about five minutes left on the show, and I wanted to make sure that we touch on something that you really love. You say you love soccer. Yes. So how did you feel the day Congo won the championship <laughs> in Kigali? I, I don't remember if it was in Kigali, whatever the city was. When the African Championship Cup 
was won by the Congolese uh, soccer team in Rwanda. Uh, what, what, what emotions went through you and what, what are the lessons learned from uh, the experience of having the cup run in Rwanda? Well, uh, you know, I, I am a big soccer fan. And uh, I definitely wanted uh, my uh, Rwandan people to win it. However, I also do think that um, for the Congolese people, it's, it was, you know, sweet redemption in a way. Because with the amount of suffering that people in Congo have suffered and the amount of um, hurt and pain that they've had to endure at the hands of people, who come from Rwanda, this is not every Rwandan. Absolutely. The atrocities committed by the RPF are not um, representative of all the Rwandans. Yes. Um, so, in a way, even though I wanted Rwanda to win, <laughs> I realized that th some things are just bigger than soccer, you know? And um, it was nice to see Congolese people celebrate and, and be happy about, you know, their win. Um, and, you know, the team is a lot better than you know, a lot of the other teams that were in there. So it was well-deserved. I wanted to ask you, um, as we're ending the show, uh, as an American citizen and everything that you've shared with, uh, you know, prior to the genocide, you being a part of everything that was going on and what you've learned till today, what can the average American citizen or world citizen do in order to raise awareness surrounding what's going on in Rwanda, in the Congo, and just in general? And what are some things that you would suggest for them to do or websites that they can go to to find out a little bit? Bit more I would uh, recommend uh, definitely getting more educated mm -hmm. and there are resources on um, friendsofthecongo.org or um, aglan a g l a n org our website they can also follow us um, follow our work on um, Facebook African Great Lakes Action Network um, and um, learn more but also share the stories of the people so that the world cannot act like they're shocked at the atrocities taking place when, um, you know, uh, it's been happening forever. Uh, and when they do know, uh, here is one thing I want to say. In 1994, during the genocide, there was a member of Congress here in the U.S. that was asked, why aren't you doing something to help the people? And the response was, I'm getting a lot of calls to help the gorillas, but I haven't gotten a call to help the people. If, you know, just know that one phone call, one phone call to a member of Congress can make a big difference. And I think that people should definitely not only learn more, but share the stories and the concerns um, with their uh, members of the, uh, Congress, get, you know, more media and more attention to the issue, you know, put a uh, shine a light on it, because we've realized that having media report on these things actually does help in getting uh, anyone that's powerful to act right. So I, mm. I think it's important. So and pretty much also, personal uh, one pressure. Last thing, mm -hmm. One last thing. Mm -hmm. um, there is a movement in the Congo, Telema. Uh, so telema.org. This is that's T as in Tom, E-L-E-M-A.org. And also um, friendsofvictoire.org. Uh, Victoire is a woman who tried to run against the Rwandan president in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. and uh, was put in prison, and she's spending 15 years um, in spite of Rwanda claiming to be the most progressive country in terms of women rights. So um, I think, you know, following those two would also be really important.
Can you share a little bit more before we end? Uh, thanks for bringing up Victoire. But our listener may not know who Victoire is. Uh, who is Victoire Ngabire and why should people support her release from jail and a call for democracy in Rwanda? Uh, Victoire is a, she's, she's a woman, a mother of uh, three children and, and a grandchild, actually. Uh, and uh, she uh, lived, she was outside of Rwanda during the genocide. And when, um, you know, after seeing so much suffering in Rwanda and also in Congo, she wanted to go back and, you know, um, since Rwanda claimed that they had the most number of women in parliament and that uh, it was very progressive, she said, hey, how about a woman president, you know, maybe I can change some of these policies and promote peace in the region and also promote reconciliation, true reconciliation in Rwanda. So she went and paid her tribute to the victims of the genocide, and she also asked for the commemoration of all victims of atrocities in Rwanda. And as a result, she was um, uh, accused of harboring genocide ideology because she challenged crimes committed by the RPF and uh, President Kagame of Rwanda. And uh, that's where it all went downhill, and uh, she started being accused of, you know, that genocide ideology and was put in jail for uh, 15 years. Uh, she is today's, in, in Rwanda, she's Rwanda's Mandela, mm-hmm. or if you will, the Aung Suu Suki, uh, the, the woman who just got released, who just won the presidency in Burma, or Bertukan Medexa of Ethiopia, you know, that's what she represents. Thank you so much for joining us today on Congo Live and sharing your story. And we look forward to having you again on the show. Hopefully next time you're actually in the studio. Uh, And it's always an honor to uh, speak and hear your story. And I commend you in what you're doing and encouraging to keep fighting that battle. Thank you so much for having me. All right. You have a great day. We want to thank our listeners for joining us today on Congo Live, the authentic voice of the Congolese people. Kambale, it's always an honor to work with you. And we look forward to you guys joining us next week. Tokumami telengano namboka mopaya nani ya sungayo